0: And welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sethi Kogan. Perhaps the BDS movement could be termed a successful failure. If you look at the numbers, the movement to boycott the Jewish state has had no appreciable impact on the Israeli economy. Maybe a few performers have canceled concerts in Israel, a few other tiny victories like that, but on the whole, Israel remains open for business. And yet, BDS has become a major topic of discussion not just on college campuses, but in newspaper opinion sections, in state houses across the U.S., and even in the halls of Congress. And the anti-BDS legislation that has been taken up is not without controversy. Joining us now to explain the ins and outs of these anti-BDS bills is Mark Stern, AJC's general counsel and one of the Jewish community's leading legal experts, who has been instrumental toward progress on this issue and others like it throughout his storied career. Mark, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. What is the purpose of federal anti-BDS legislation? Well, there are several federal anti-BDS proposals floating around. And they,
1: particularly the one that's uh, currently in the news, S1, are built around state anti-BDS laws. So um, the BDS movement is an attempt to use economic leverage to pressure the Israeli government into making concessions to the Palestinians without any reciprocal concessions by the Palestinians, which are the essence of the negotiations that ultimately are gonna bring peace to the Middle East. Uh, President Abbas has said he's no longer gonna negotiate with the Israelis, he's gonna rely on third parties to negotiate. So the BDS movement, which doesn't merely seek a two-state solution, but a river to sea solution for Palestinians, is an effort to leverage pressure against Israel. It also has the effect, when people are boycotting Israeli producers, of limiting the goods and services and technologies that are available to states which are contracting for goods and services. So, for example, if a state is contracting with a pharmaceutical intermediary to provide the medicines for its prisons, its hospitals and the like, and that company goes into the marketplace and it's going to buy generics. Well, the largest generic producer in the world is it's an Israeli corporation. If the intermediary, for its own political reasons, is boycotting Israel, the state is denied the benefit of the price effect that Teva has on the market and those products that are exclusively available to Teva. And states are entitled to say, we want the entire marketplace. We don't want a limited marketplace. Similarly, with with regard to pension investments, the state is entitled to say, if we're investing, We don't want our hands tied in our investments by somebody else's political agenda. Take that off the table. So that's the heart of the state BDS legislations. One is a prohibition on investing in companies that are boycotting Israel. That harms the company's chances of success and therefore the value of the investment. And uh, contracting where the state says we don't want to contract with people who are boycotting.
0: But, Mark, I've seen all these stories, heart you know, heartrending stories about right. a, a woman in Texas who couldn't rebuild her home with government assistance or a speech pathologist in Kansas, maybe, who was fired from her job in a public school because she was boycotting Israel. Can you help us understand exactly what's going on there?
1: Sure. What happened is, uh, frankly, when we drafted these statutes, I think none of us understood quite how broadly the word contract is used in the ordinary operation of state government, hmm. so what we had in mind is the case that, you that described, I described, which to makes you. perfect sense. But because contracts are used in a variety of circumstances where an outsider would not think of contracts, you think when a teacher or a speech pathologist is hired, they're just an employee. You don't. In the United States, we don't ordinarily draft contracts for those people. We simply hire them. We didn't know that. So those cases are shaking out. Uh, We've conceded, AJC has conceded, for example, that the speech pathologist in Texas should have not been denied a job because she's not buying hummus from Israel. Uh, And, you know, she also wants to practice speech pathology in the public schools. We agree that the, the statutes are in some small measure Overbroad simply because we didn't understand, we didn't grasp how pervasive the notion of contract is and how read literally it covers all sorts of things that don't fit the rubric and the rationale I gave you. And we're trying to fix those statutes, uh, and certainly not to contest uh, individual uh, people's rights when they have those sorts of claims. I must say, in Kansas, it was a math teacher who was teaching other math teachers, and it was the Plainly, if in my original preferred solution was simply to ban the teaching of math. Uh, but that, that didn't work. But so we, we said that the, we amended the Kansas. We had the Kansas statute amended so that it read that the boycott had to relate to the substance of the contract. And since the substance of the contract is teaching math and not buying hummus has nothing to do with buying of math, uh, that person is now outside the statute in addition to monetary limits we've, uh, we've had inserted.
0: All right, take us to Congress now to help us understand this federal legislation. So
1: there are two basic ideas floating around Congress. The one that's in the news today, uh, S one, uh, the first Senate, the first Senate bill, the first of, of, Senate bill of the year Congress. of this Congress, uh, is designed to eliminate an argument that conceivably could be made uh, about state BDS bills. Most of the state BDS bills, the challenges you've talked about, have been based on the free speech right to engage in political boycotts. There's another conceivable argument, which is that uh, since BDS is essentially about a fight overseas uh, between Israelis and Palestinians, not a, not fortunately at the moment, a warm fight, but a, a, an ongoing dispute in the Middle East. So it might be argued that the states cannot interfere with foreign policy, that foreign policy and foreign commerce issues are for the federal government in our system, not for the states. So the S-1 takes aim at that argument and says, we Congress get to decide on foreign policy and foreign commerce. And we're saying it doesn't interfere with the nation's foreign policy or the foreign commerce to have these state laws. There are certain safeguards for corporations, but that's the gist of the idea.
0: So uh, I'm, I'm just going to repeat it back to you to be sure I get it because this is complicated for me. I'm sure it's it's complicated for for all of our listeners as well. So th- this is a good old commerce clause thing.
1: Com- commerce and foreign affairs power. And
0: those are Congress's powers. And someone who would object to a state law might say, "Well, you know, th- the state doesn't have the right to do this because Congress has the right to do it." And so Congress is basically saying, "No, no, it's cool. We have no objection. Exactly. To this. Exactly. Can go ahead. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So, so, so- that's
1: the, that's the first of the federal laws. Oh it's yes. The second federal proposal is more complicated and, you know, needs to be looked at in drafting terms and how you draft this uh, more closely. There is an upcoming blacklist put together by the UN, Human Rights Council, notoriously biased against Israel, of companies that do business on the West Bank. There's an existing law, Uh, goes back to the mid-1970s that, in effect, prohibited American corporations from cooperating with the Arab boycott of Israel, which was a larger state-organized economic boycott of Israel, again, with the purpose of denying Israel the ability to survive, actually, in its origins. This was amended in the 90s. It's now in another bill. And now the question is, what do you do with the UN? The original bill was drafted at foreign governments imposing a boycott. Here you have the UN, which doesn't have power of law. It has suasive power in some circles. And the question is, should that boycott be treated the same as the original Arab boycott? And that is the question. Now, the problem is, there are very technical problems because there used to be a separate standalone Arab boycott law. That expired. It got folded into the general rules about exports. So, our boycotts, uh, our our embargo on Iran and China and so on, is in the same statute. And some of the objections that have been made uh, about freedom of speech and so on, and the criminal penalties that come with it, are due not to the anti-BDS bill itself having those properties, but the larger bill has those properties. So those have to be, those issues have to be worked out. They're not insuperable
0: obstacles, they're just drafting problems. Well, OK. At the beginning, you encourage me to take a step back and, and go to the state level instead of the, starting at the federal level. Now, I want to have us take a step back. OK. Um, and I want to talk about boycott more generally. Isn't the choice to boycott something an expression of free speech? Absolutely. So should the American government really be involved in telling American citizens who they can and cannot boycott?
1: No. And none of these bills do that. We would not support, uh, I think, an effort to punish people who are boycotting Israel. You don't want to buy, you know, Israeli hummus or teva drugs to your heart's content. Uh, that's clearly protected behavior. The case is NACP v. Claiborne Hardware. It was a civil rights boycott, blacks boycotting whites um, to achieve certain civil rights goals. Um, the Supreme Court unanimously said that was protected behavior, uh, AJC and other Jewish groups supported the NACP in that case, and we have not changed our principles because Israel is involved. But again, there is no general ban on boycotting Israel. The state bills are essentially aimed at protecting the interests of the state, whether in investments or in purchasing. The first federal bill, the S-1, the one that's currently on the table, is simply designed to protect those state bills. And the bill that we expect to be introduced dealing with the UN Human Rights Council is a mimic of the original anti-boycott bill. None of them prohibited the other states from boycotting, but the United States as a sovereign has an interest in protecting its allies from the use of coercive powers. And To the extent that it doesn't directly conflict with the free speech rights, it has the right to do so, and certainly that's what the state bills do.
0: And yet there are civil liberties groups in the U.S., like the ACLU, for example, and some liberal Jewish groups as well that are objecting to this legislation, I think precisely on the grounds that they feel that this is infringing on people's right to free expression. What's going on there?
1: All right. So as I said at the outset – because we didn't have a full grasp on the extent of state contracting. The state statutes have not, I think, because we wanted them to, because we simply didn't know, have have dragooned in some cases, dredged up some cases we didn't imagine. And those do, in fact, pose some free speech problems. If you want to have a government contract and you have a private boycott of hummus, we keep picking on hummus, but the government has no interest in telling me I have to buy Israeli hummus as opposed to made-in-Chicago hummus. Um, But the state bill certainly and the first federal bill are not aimed at that. The other bill, the one aimed at the Human Rights Council, poses a little more difficult problem because, and again, we don't have final wording of this year's bill, so it's a little bit hard to talk about it. But the idea is that foreign powers, foreign entities, the UN being one of them, shouldn't be able to tell Americans who they should and shouldn't be buying on and discouraging American firms from doing business uh, in Israel or in pressuring our ally through economic force. It's an exercise of sovereignty. How you balance that against people's rights to free speech is a more interesting and difficult question. But so far, we don't have that bill. We had it last session. It got held up. That's a harder one than the, the state ones that we're talking about. Not impossible, but it, it's got to be drafted carefully.
0: Mm-hmm. I have a, a meta question, a, a strategic question here. Isn't there a case to be made? You've convinced me that it's legal, the legislation- There's that, a
1: core of legality.
0: Sure. That there are instances where you know a, a bill might be drafted clumsily and, and cross a line, and that needs to be revised and fixed. And To me, that seems like that's kind of normal legislative uh, process. You've convinced me that these bills- can be legal, and in many instances are legal, but are they strategic? Is there a case to be made that it is precisely this emphasis on fighting BDS that has actually given it oxygen and made it so that it's now covered as a major political issue that's on the lips of everyone talking about the most pressing matters before Congress right now?
1: Okay. So so you have to divide that question into a couple of parts. Uh, is anti? I, I thought
0: you were opposed to math.
1: Yeah, but I didn't say how many. But but this uh, division, we okay. <laughs> this I can manage. Uh, not
0: long division.
1: I mean, the question of whether, uh, and by the way, it's not an anti-boycott bill alone. It's wrapped up with aid to Jordan and and S one S one. It's got several other issues in it. It's a Middle East bill, not a anti-boycott bill standing alone. You would never know that from listening to the critics. <laughs> I know because I waded through all twenty-eight pages, but
0: but that seems short for legislation.
1: Okay, that's the first draft. (laughs) Um, So that's a legitimate question: why it was brought up as the very first bill when the government is half shut down? You know, okay, fair enough. But – and then, of course, in law school, you learn – when you're asked the question, is there a case to be made, the answer is almost inevitably yes. (laughs) Uh, And that's what we lawyers do for a living. We make cases out of of hopeless causes. Um, Yes, there is a case to be made um, that, at least in the United States, BDS has not been terribly successful. Um, There are echo chambers in which it's all the rage. But – as an economic threat to Israel, it's not. It hasn't been in the United States. And even in Europe, where it is more of a threat, it's not been terribly damaging so far. As to that, I would say a couple of things. First, one of the reasons why it's not been an economic success is because the Jewish community and other supporters of Israel have made it clear that The BDS movement is not fundamentally about reaching a peace solution, not about redressing Palestinian rights, but Omar Barghouti is very clear in his book. uh, The aim is the elimination of the Jewish state. You have to keep that up because ideas that start at the margin have a noxious way of, by dint of repetition, becoming legitimate. And so, yes, it's a fair argument that, we have in some ways called more attention to the BDS issue than it might otherwise have gotten in the general public. On the other hand, I think it's the judgment of the community as a whole, and I think correctly, that if we did not oppose um, these manifestations and expose them for what their ultimate goal is, not peace between Palestinians and Jews, but you know, the elimination of the state of Israel, um, then the tendency would be for the idea to become normal and acceptable. And it's easy to see in in the fuss and the controversy, it's easy to see the downside, the case you postulated. It's harder to see, but it's the long term, the far greater threat is that uh, ideas that really there shouldn't be a state of Israel uh, and that we should cut off its economic lifeblood becomes accepted. You, You see that over and over in public life. And so the judgment has been, and I think correctly, that that long-term need overcomes the short-term losses. That doesn't mean, as as sometimes happens, uh, that some in the Jewish community overreact to every individual expression of support for a boycott of Israel or every criticism of Israel or every decision affecting Israel negatively as if it were, you know— Hitler at in the door in in the doorway. It, there's there's a balance to be struck here. but um, overall, I think the answer is is the one I've given you. Uh, I would say also that Americans tend to be very parochial. And while BDS has not succeeded pretty much at all in the United States as a serious enterprise, that's less so in Europe. And one of the things you want to do, with BDS legislation in America is allow international corporations. After all, you're not concerned with every small contractor. You're concerned with large multinational corporations whose absence from Israel would be felt. To be able, as somebody put it to me once, you want them to be able to, their general counsel, a person whom I have great sympathy for, <laughs> to, be, to be able to tell his CEO or her CEO, um, look, yes, it might appease you know some left-wing types here in Europe – but it's going to cost you a very big – a couple of very big contracts in America.
0: You're saying for that company For to that company
1: and not to boycott Israel may, may win some plaudits in left-wing or Muslim circles in Europe. But it's going to cost you dollars in the United States, many dollars. And we Americans can't ignore those overseas requirements. An interesting example, by the way, of the value of making a big deal about very little is when the academic mm-hmm. associations – started adopting BDS legislations. Many of those organizations were very small, not of terribly great import. And the same question was asked, like, what do you care what the American Studies Association does? Or then, you know, there were several ethnic studies groups. Well, we chose to make a big deal of it over the objection of some, I think probably including me at the time, <laughs> that we were making something out of nothing. And we were giving more attention to issue. The- In fact, though, that we cauterized the problem. Yeah. It it stopped.
0: Yeah. Uh, The historians haven't done it.
1: Right. So we stopped it by what some would have said at the time was overreacting. And and it's an important lesson to keep in
0: mind. Yeah. Um, Just to bring us to a conclusion here, we're not analyzing this in a vacuum. S1 is currently being debated in the Senate. The federal government is largely shut down. The Democrats in the Senate have drawn a line and said, we are not going to vote for any bill that doesn't open up the government. Do you think that that's a reasonable line for them to make?
1: There are some things I know about, Sefi, and some things I don't. The important point for me, and for us as AJC, is that it's not a line about Israel. It's it's a line about – the Democrats are drawing a line about priorities in the Senate. You can agree with that line or disagree with the line. The important point is that, that the partisan jockeying over the opening the government and the wall and so on, uh, if Israel happens to get caught up in it, it's not about Israel. Israel is sort of an innocent bystander to these debates and, and we should, in keeping with the longstanding AJC and, in fact, general American Jewish community position – that Israel is a bipartisan or nonpartisan issue, not a partisan issue. We should adhere to that line. Uh, it, it's unfortunate that Israel's gotten caught up in this otherwise partisan debate. But, it, it's, not, but it's important to keep in mind that it's not about Israel. It's, it's about something else in which Israel incidentally gets caught up. And the bill itself is not only about Israel. Jordan is caught up in the bill and they're held hostage.
0: Well, amen to bipartisanship on uh, the U.S.-Israel relationship. Mark, thank you so much for joining us to shed some light on this really complicated situation.
1: Thanks very much.
0: If you turn your head one way, Europe and Israel appear to be great friends with shared values and robust trade. But look the other way, and constant political sniping makes them look more like frenemies than best buds. So which is it? Daniel Schwamenthal, the director of AJC's Brussels-based Transatlantic Institute, recently wrote an essay on just this topic called Even-Handed or Heavy-Handed Relations. He joins us now to discuss the present and future of this important relationship. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. In your essay, you detailed two opposite views on the EU-Israel relationship. You said that the EU and Israel can be seen as the best of partners, but they can also be seen as having a relationship in crisis. Can we go one by one in one minute? Can you make the case for why the Europe-Israel relationship is great?
2: Well, um, First of all, the European Union um, is Israel's um, most important trading partner. It may come as a surprise to many Americans. It's not the United States, but actually the EU. Um, At the same time, Israel is a a privileged partner in a number of exclusive EU, uh, or I should say otherwise exclusive EU programs. Um, uh, for instance, uh, what is uh, called here the Horizon 2020 program, which is a, a huge multi billion um, research program uh, where Israel is uh, actually um, the, the most successful uh, participant country more successful per capita um, than than EU member states. Uh, So the way it works is that every member state or every participating country contributes a certain amount of money that is uh, adjusted to that country's GDP uh, into a big pot and then uh, researchers from every country can ask for research grants and it's uh, basically then based on the merits of the the research proposal and, and given Israel's technological prowess Israel is per capita getting the most money out of the pot back into into its uh, research centers and and another just another example um, the EU and Israel have, have signed an open sky agreement making uh, air travel much much cheaper between the two countries and and this has led to um, you know a, a dramatic increase of, of tourism on, on both sides so just to give you uh, a brief brief uh, brief examples of why one could make the case that this is a fantastic relationship without any
0: problems and now what is the counter-argument? What's the trouble in paradise? Right. Uh, Well, it's a complex relationship. So this was
2: the sunny side, but uh, (laughs) there is a more troubling side. First of all, um, the um, long list of very um, israel critical statements that come out of the eu on a regular basis um, my my main my main uh, um, concern here is that the eu has a too one one-sided view of the um, israeli-palestinian conflict and 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 this leads to very one-sided statements very often and it's um and 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 the other problem is that The EU tends to look at Israel primarily uh, through the prism of the uh, Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And because they have uh, a slightly one-sided view of that conflict, it it, it threatens to overshadow every aspect of the EU-Israel relationship. Uh, So to give you an example from earlier... Every EU-Israel agreement, including such successful agreements like the Open Sky Agreement and, and, and other agreements on, on, on free trade, etc., need to have a what is called a territorial clause—a provision making sure that the terms of these agreements don't apply to what the EU considers um, occupied uh, territory. Um, and if you look at opinion polls uh, in, in, in Europe, um, the general public is very, very. Critical And, uh, you know, and, 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 and to some extent, even um, uh, bordering to having um, very hostile anti-Israeli views that could even be considered anti-Semitic, according to the IRA working definition of anti-Semitism when it comes to things like double standards or comparing Israelis to Nazis, etc.,
0: Probably the overarching story, the overriding theme throughout news coverage history, one of the real driving forces of EU politics or internal European politics, rather, um, over the past decade or decade and a half has been this massive demographic shift uh, that's taking place in Europe as a result of immigration to Europe. Mm. How does that Factor in to the present state and the future of the EU Israel relationship?
2: It's difficult uh, to assess how the demographic changes have already, to what extent, if they have affected, and if so, to what extent they they may have already affected uh, EU policies. Because, um, obviously, you will not really find people openly admitting it. Uh, At the same time, it's difficult to gauge it. The fact is, as you said, um, that uh, Europe um, has imported over the last decades, in particular over the last three to five years, uh, a large number of uh, new um, immigrants, refugees um, uh, from the, from the Middle East, who uh, were brought up in a very anti-Israeli, uh, with a an very uh, anti-Israeli mindset, and 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 who obviously, uh, to uh, to some degree, carry with them this cultural baggage, and it gets often reinforced here in in parallel societies. Through the internet, through hate preachers, etc. Um, but it's difficult to assess whether that already really plays an important role. In various member states' political decisions, uh, one can only speculate that um, you know perhaps uh, French uh, politicians may reasonably believe that certain Israeli critical statements may play well with uh, some of the Muslim demographics. But it's difficult to really show this or prove it. But but it's it's a reasonable assumption that this uh, already may play. Uh, a role for for some politicians in certain countries with a particularly high um, Muslim population. And given the fact that all forecasts predict that the Muslim Arab Muslim population will rise, not just in absolute numbers, but also in relative numbers, that this will uh, most likely play an even more important role over the years to come.
0: Europe is still thought of as this liberal bastion, but many countries are moving away from liberalism. Hungary's Viktor Orban, for example, even refers to his governing ideal as what he calls an illiberal democracy. What does that shift? What does that shift to the right in European politics mean for the future of the relationship?
2: That is a very, uh, very good question and, and, and it's a tricky one because um, the same countries often um, have a rather positive relationship uh, with Israel. Uh, Viktor Orban's Hungary is, is a prime example, uh, Poland also. Um, generally, the countries in Central Europe have a much closer and better and more nuanced relationship with Israel uh, than many countries um, in the West. I would not, though, make the argument that this is because some of these uh, governments have sort of illiberal tendencies. I I, I would rather say that it's um, more due to the fact that these countries have a very different history from West European countries. Um, I, in, in many conversations I had with uh, people from Poland, from, with politicians, diplomats from the Baltics, I think these people uh, live in an environment that makes them uh, understand Israel's security situation much better than somebody who grew up in post-war Europe uh, western europe in you know in freedom and, and it has never experienced um, uh, luckily war or communist oppression and but if you come from poland or if you come from a baltic state you do realize to this day that uh... you know war is a possibility with Russia just next door and and the fact that you can disappear from the map uh... like the baltics did like poland did in previous century so i think they have a better Feeling they can better emphasize with the fact that yes, Israel, uh, you know, is uh, is a small country, and so I think they take the threats against Israel more seriously, whereas in Western Europe, the notion. That, uh, you know, there could be really existential threats to a country so alien, I think, that makes it difficult, therefore, or more difficult for them to really grasp the Israeli situation. And I think the, uh, the difference is more because of the sort of historical perspective that many Central Europeans have.
0: Now, Daniel, the EU just enacted new sanctions on Iran for a a pretty scandalous reason, actually. Can you tell us more about that? The sanctions that were imposed came uh, as a result
2: of a number of really brazen criminal and terror plots by the Iranian uh, regime. They assassinated dissidents in the Netherlands. They uh, planned a bomb attack on a major opposition rally uh, that took place in Paris with thousands of participants, including many American and European uh, politicians. Uh, They have spied on Jewish and Israeli organization as potential terror targets, including Jewish kindergartens. And after um, the most recent assassination attempt in Denmark on uh, uh, Iranian dissidents, which apparently was foiled with the help of Israeli intelligence services, um, the Danes, but also the, the Dutch, really pushed forward to finally have... Uh, at least a beginning of a proper diplomatic response to these terror activities on on European soil and carried out with the help even of Iranian diplomats. Now, I'm very happy that finally something has happened, but it took an awfully long time. And in the end, obviously, the punishment doesn't quite fit the crime, because those sanctions are rather minor. They target uh, two or three specific individuals involved and a unit, only a, a specific unit of the intelligence ministry apparently responsible for these assassination attempts. So this unit is now on the EU terror list, it's a symbol of good first step. But in my view, uh, definitely uh, not enough, not the proper response for uh, what has uh, happened here over the past couple of years. And we believe that this is now really the time also to take the next logical step, which is to put the entire Hezbollah organization on the EU terror list and to do away with this artificial distinction between the so-called military and political arm, allowing the political arm to continue fundraising in Europe. And as we all know, Hezbollah is a wholly owned, funded Iranian organization, and free at least on the political side, so to speak, to uh, recruit and raise funds in Europe, and this really must end.
0: Well, this is incredibly important work, and we wish you much success. And, of course, we'll continue to coordinate with you and help out from here in the U.S. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Federal Employees good for the Jews? As we record, the federal government has been partially shut down for 20 days because President Trump is insisting that Congress authorize funding for his border wall and Senate Republicans are standing by him so far. If Congress doesn't pass a funding bill by the weekend, the shutdown will break the 1995 record for the longest in U.S. history. What does the shutdown look like? It looks like 800,000 federal employees either sent home from their jobs or forced to work without pay. Tomorrow, they will miss their first paycheck. Our airports are overcrowding because TSA agents are calling in sick rather than working without pay. National parks and museums are closed. The tourism industry is suffering. Important government inspections like of food and medicine aren't taking place. And perhaps most importantly, funding for food stamps will run out in late February. And already, some low-income housing tenants are at risk of eviction. All of those problems will only mount. More issues will surface. Jews are affected because some federal employees are Jewish, because some people receiving federal assistance are Jewish, and because all Americans are affected. Our country works. Our country thrives. Because federal employees in Washington, across the country, and around the world do their jobs. Now they are becoming the latest victims of the sorry state of our politics. And of politicians who won't do theirs. It's time for President Trump and Congress to reopen the U.S. government. Because federal employees are good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org Passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport@ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.